Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Hopefully you have your Bible still open to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at today the Church of Philadelphia, the faithful church. And uh, as it's in your notes there, um, I wanted to begin first, though, before we got into the message itself, uh, giving you an update on where we are at in Nepal, with Nepal, that whole uh, opportunity for ministry in Nepal. Because I'm sure you're wondering, with all of these um, airline uh, cancellations that the president is saying, we can't fly here, can't fly there, and... um, one of the places that we can't fly right now is Nepal. <laughs> so as, as it stands right now, the trip isn't off, it is postponed. And so we're just waiting uh, to hear back. But So we want to continue in our opportunity to provide for these pastors. And if you've been giving to that, uh, we're going we're gonna to get a, a little giving chart up there so we know how close we are and how much we can blow this out of the water. And uh, apart from our normal offering, you know, what we can be giving to make sure that these uh, pastors and uh, elders get an opportunity to come and be trained in presenting the gospel. And our our task is hermeneutics and soul care and a New Testament survey, which is mine, uh, that we're going to be uh, preaching and teaching them with. So uh, look for me to be gone somewhere in August uh, for that. We don't want to be gone our birthday week coming up um, in September, so uh, just letting you know. Also, want to let you know, I'm excited for this. You guys need to be excited. Just say I'm excited. Yeah, very good. (laughs) This is why we don't give Danny a microphone. Uh, I'm excited that next week we're going to be back in the book of Amos with Pastor Jeremiah. Aren't you guys excited about that? Yeah, so look forward to that. I'm looking forward to sitting under his teaching next week brother looking forward to that and I know God's going to use it in a powerful way so uh, as you know sparse uh, throughout the year Pastor Jeremiah is going to be preaching and bringing us the book of Amos okay we are back in the book of Revelation we are on uh, the faithful church the church of Philadelphia we're in our series the seven uh, churches as we do our year-long study behold the lamb and um just want to begin by talking about the city of Philadelphia, and I don't want to confuse you because before 1776, there was a Philadelphia. There was a place that existed as a city of brotherly love. Here's our map, if we may. And you can see in this drawing where it's at. Uh, it, was a, it was the youngest of the cities that was uh, listed in these churches. Of these seven churches, this was the youngest. It had only started about 100 years before Christ. That's when it got its foundation. That's when it began to be a city. It was destroyed, though, many times uh, because where it sits was in a volcanic region, and uh, because of the shifting of the tectonic plates, there was lots of earthquakes And in fact, in 17 AD, after the city was only about 100 years old, it was destroyed by a giant earthquake, but it was rebuilt by uh, Caesar Augustus. It's 25 miles south of Sardis, which we talked about last week. It was called the Gateway to the East because it went uh, all the way to Persia, which opened up then the rest of the East. It was named uh, by um, King Emmanius of Pergamum because it was built for his brother. And so people were like, this is a city built for brotherly love. Because my brother built this for me because he loves me. So we see where the name comes from. Obviously, we call our own Philadelphia the city of brotherly love because that's what the word means. The church uh, was a spectacular church, and it had a faithful reputation. Uh, Paul didn't go on any missionary journey to this area. He went to Ephesus. Now, if you look here, folks, he went to Ephesus 
And all of these churches came out of Ephesus. Remember what the governor Pliny said at the time. This church has infected this city, towns, and communities all across the region. Literally, it had. That in five of the six churches that we have looked at, Ephesus excluding themselves, they had planted churches. And this was a faithful church. Early church father Ignatius passed through Philadelphia on his way to martyrdom before his death, and he wrote a letter to them because they were so faithful to him. Early members of the church were murdered with Polycarp. Remember how Polycarp died? The second church that we looked at there? How Polycarp was roasted in a brass bull because the lions wouldn't eat him? Because Christians from Philadelphia had been eaten by the lions previously to Polycarp. The church lasted for centuries. And when I mean centuries, I mean centuries. Everybody say, he means that. That's right. Uh, Philly stood uh, in this region even when the region was overrun by the Muslims. It finally had succumbed to the Muslim influence in the 14th century. That means this church was over 1,300 years old because it faithfully served the Lord. I think I have a picture here. I don't know if I put it in there or not. Did I put a picture in? You can say no if I didn't. Okay. It's always good to be live and then making statements like that. Okay, when we think about um, what we're going to learn from this church, though, I want to say it in a sentence, and before we pop that sentence up there, I want you to note it comes down to verse 11. Verse 11 says this. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one seizes your crown. Hold fast means to grab hold of, to conquer. What? How long? Look at the verse. Until he comes. So, as we tear apart this letter from John to the church of Philadelphia, we can learn uh, that this church was told to do this, and here's our say it in a sentence. Hold fast until I come. Hold fast. Get a grip. Hold tightly. Last week it was what? Do you remember? Do you remember? Wake up! This week it's hold fast. Two different churches, two different messages. All right, so we're going to break this down like we always do. See me. See me. How is Jesus portrayed in this text? Well, let's begin with verse 7. Uh, but look up here real quick before we do. Sorry. I love it when you're looking in your Bibles. Uh, amen. But we, we've noted over and over again that Jesus is defining himself based on the initial vision that John had seen. Okay? So every one of these churches along the way, Jesus is just repeating what he told John at the very beginning. And, but specifically he is saying this. That works until you get to this church. And in this church, it's something totally different. Because Jesus was coming as a judge for those churches, and in this church, he doesn't judge them. All right, so he, he says something totally different, which uh, I don't want you to go back and go, well, Pastor Nate, you said this. I, a little caveat there. This is not found in the initial statement. Now, verse 7 says this, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. How is Jesus portrayed? Well, these are statements about his divinity. He was God, the second person of the Trinity, and he begins with this statement, I'm holy. I am holy. Now, holiness means utterly separated from sin. Therefore, my character is absolutely unblemished and flawless. Now, just by a quick raise of hands, how many could say that is you? Right. That's why we have small group. 
so that we can work towards holiness. But they remind us that we are not absolutely unblemished and flawless. But Christ is. And he's saying this of himself. I'm holy. Which is unique because that's an attribute of God. And so therefore he's calling himself God. In fact, Hosea 11.9 says this. God says to Israel, I am the Holy One in your midst. Isaiah do you remember that great passage in Isaiah chapter 6? Where Isaiah, King Uzziah had died. He had, he had been in that country as the leader for 45 years. Isaiah was the prophet who was a friend of King Uzziah. And he had died. And in that moment, he saw the Lord. High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And then just before he saw too much, the temple filled with smoke, but he could hear something. Do you remember what he heard? He heard this antiphonal chorus of angels going back and forth saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now that's important. Because when you say holy, you're saying, this is my character. Think of all the things that the world wants us to say about God. God is love. The angels could have been saying, love, love, love. God is justice. They weren't saying that. They were saying holy. But they weren't saying it once. They weren't saying it twice. They were saying it three times, and that's important. Because to say it once was important. Character. Say it twice was to say it like with emphasis. So one person said it this way. As you're walking down a road and you fell in a pit, if it was a really big pit, in Hebrew, they would write, I fell in a pit, pit. But only of God and only here in the Scriptures is it recorded three times to show the immense awesomeness of who God is. He is holy. And Jesus now takes that statement on himself. But it wasn't just Jesus who said that about him. In Mark chapter 1, Verse 24, it says, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was healing people, he was casting out demons, and some of the demons said, we know who you are. Now that would be really interesting if they said that to you, right? But they said to Jesus, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus is holy. Just as God is holy, Jesus is holy, and his Spirit is holy, we call him the Holy Spirit. Holiness is an essential part of the characteristic of the Trinity. It is to say that they are utterly separate from sin, and therefore they are absolutely unblemished and flawless. We want a God like that, amen? Absolutely unblemished and flawless. We won't fully understand that until we're changed to be like him and fully glorified, and at which point we will be able to say we are holy. But also he says this, I am true. He says, this is the words of the Holy One and the True One. Again, divinity proclaimed. The Greek word means authentic, genuine, real. It's drawing a line from God's divinity to Jesus' divinity because they're the same, they are one, fully God, the form of the Son, form of the Father, form of the Holy Spirit, three in one. It's not an egg. It's okay. I can't explain the Trinity in great detail because there's nothing like it. But God is drawing a line in His holy word that Jesus is true. And Jesus is saying, I am true. Let's examine some scripture, though. The prophet Jeremiah said, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. And Jesus said in the upper room di uh, discourse, in the upper room conversation, we talked about this last week, in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In John 14, 6, but Jesus' words were right. In John 20, excuse, excuse me, in John 14, it says, and we know that the Son of God, has, I'm sorry, 
1 John 5, verse 20 says this, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. So John again is saying Jesus is true. And we are in Him who is true, meaning God, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So Jesus is drawing a line to His divinity here, to this church. No doubt, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is divine. He is holy, and he is true. Now, wouldn't it be horrible if that's what we couldn't say of our God? We could sing these songs, but we couldn't say he's holy. That, he's, that he's a, our God's a liar. Right? That, uh, no. Never will we be able to say that. His character is holiness. Out of his holiness, he is true. He speaks the truth. And now we notice three more things that he says about himself. And these can be a little bit um, confusing if you don't read the Scripture. Because they all come from the Scripture. Actually, they all come from one passage in the Scripture. Uh, He says, the first thing is that he's holding a key. He's holding a key. I like to think it's a key like this, right? But specifically, he's holding the key of what? What's the scripture say, guys? David, the key of David. David, uh, his office was king, which meant it shows us that Christ is king, the messianic nature of who Jesus was the promised one who would take up the throne of his father, David. A key was issued, listen, a key is given to the one who is in control. Whoever has the key has control. And who has the key? Church, who has the key? Christ has the key. And notice what he does with that key. Two things. Directly quoted from Isaiah 22, by the way. He's the one who opens things. He opens things. That's what a key does, right? What good is a key if it doesn't open something? Like if somebody gave you a lockbox with the wrong lock, it's not much of a birthday present, is it? I mean, it might be good for something like dynamite, because you could blow that thing up and finally open it up. That's about it. But Christ is the one who has the key, and he opens things with that key. We're going to talk about that because it comes up later in the text. But also notice he closes things. He closes things. He's the one who opens doors, locks. In fact, maybe you've made the mistake as you're walking somebody's dog and you lock the keys to the house, inside the house, and you were stranded outside the house. Just saying. It's important to have keys. And this is important because Scripture answers Scripture, right? And it's important to have a door that's open. Acts 14, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 12, Colossians 4, all speak about God opening doors for the effective ministry of the gospel. In fact, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, write that down. God has given, Paul saying, me a wide door for effective work that he has opened to me. God is the one who opens doors. He is the one who shuts doors. That same individual, Paul, in Acts 16, says he wanted to go to Bithynia. Bithynia in our map was like near the top section. He wanted to go there, but the Holy Spirit closed that door. He wasn't allowed to go. What's the meaning? The meaning of this introduction of who Christ is is he's holy, he's true, and look, we need to remember this even more right now. He is sovereignly in control of situations that happen around you. He opens doors, he closes them. He opens situations, he closes them. And he's saying, I, my characteristic is holy, my life, my words are true, and I am sovereignly in control of everything that's going to happen to you. In the first vision of Jesus, 
He also held keys. Do you remember what it said in Revelation chapter 1? That he holds the keys to death and hell. Now he opens the keys, has the keys to righteousness and life. Don't miss that. He's the one who is sovereignly in control. And secondly, as we follow what we've been following all along, Christ wants us to see him because he sees us. Now, everybody got a pen and your Bible ready? All right, so I want you to underline some things as we read 8 through 10. All right? Because I want us to see how is he, what is he seeing? How is he seeing this church? How is he seeing us? Begin with this, I know your works. Underline that. Underline that. Verse 8, I know your works. We'll talk about that in a minute. He goes on to say, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now underline, I know that you have little power. So he knows our works. He knows we have little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Underline that. So basically, all of, almost all of verse 8. Verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now underline the beginning of verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. Can you trust the one who is sovereignly in control of everything? It's not a rhetorical question. Can you trust him? Yes or no? Okay. So if you can trust him, look, look here. Hold fast. Right? Hold fast because he sees you. I want you to understand that. And I love this. In every church but one, he says, I know your works. That is so intimate. And it can be so troubling. The word know, have it up on the screen here for you, means to possess information about. That they are knowledgeable. I see it. And I don't just see it in passing. I know what I saw. You ever say that? I know what I saw. Now, usually, if you think about that and how we use that, it's, it's usually in the midst of an argument. Or, a, in the case of Roger, an uh, interrogation. I know what I saw. Right? But he knows what he saw. And he knows what he sees in you. It's intimate knowledge about what you do. I know what I saw. I possess knowledge about your works. Jesus knew their works, what they did, how they glorified him. And the result was, because you're being faithful in little things, I've set before you an open door that no one can shut. You see that there in verse 8? I know your works. Because you've been faithful, I've set before you an open door that no one can shut. What else does he know? He knows that they have little power. They were a small church. This is never a large church, but it was a faithful church. Look, and I'm not saying this because our numbers aren't through the roof. God's not concerned about numbers. He's concerned about faithfulness. Okay? You be faithful. He knows what you do. The numbers will take care of themselves. Faithfulness in Christianity is being faithful and keeping his word. Jesus is watching. Be faithful. He knows, number three, that you've kept his word. Jesus said in John 14, 15, and 16, it's interesting, he said in each one of those chapters, if you love me, you will keep my word. You will keep my commandments. You will keep what I am telling you. Clearly, this was a church that loved to hear from Jesus and follow his word. There's a logical question right there. And if I have to tell you what the question is, you're missing it. Now, 
Number four, you have not denied my name. You have not denied my name. Now, I've had the privilege of marrying uh, several people since becoming a pastor. One of the things I write into that statement is during their vows, they make this statement to one another. I am honored to call you my husband. I am honored to call you my wife. It's, it's a kind of a precious moment. And on occasion, they, they get that little quiver, you know, it's, and it, that makes me cry because, you know, I'm a crier. Anyway, we won't dwell there. I say that to say this. This church's song, this church's statement would be, Christ, you be magnified. They would sing, Jesus, only Jesus. They would close every service with, Oh, Christ, be the center of my life. I will not deny your name. In the midst of trials, they remain faithful to his sovereignty and who he was. Again, there's a question there. In the midst of your situations, are you faithful to share that you are a follower of Christ? Number five, I know you patiently endured. He knows these things. It seems like a natural progression. Stay with me for a minute. I know your works, child. I know your works. You have little power, but you did this in my strength. I, I can see that. I know that you weren't just hearers of the word, but you were also doers also, and you're proud to call me your Lord. You didn't deny me at any time, good or bad. You remained under patiently the trial enduring. In fact, patience is the theme of this church. Seven times in the New Testament, specifically patience is a character builder for the believer. Patience builds character, character builds faithfulness and maturity. See also James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. So you hold fast. You hold fast because I see you, church. And you hold fast because the word, uh, you hold fast the word for the faithful. Here's what he's saying to this church. You're faithful. I've set before you an open door. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have little power. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. We'll get to verse 10 in just a minute. Notice first, though, there were some positives to these beholdings. Three things that they were super, super important for this church to wrap hold of. He's saying, you hold on, church, because I've set before you an open door that no one's able to shut. Ministry opportunity was right there, and they walked through it. Uh, prophetically, this church was the church after the Reformation from about seven, the late 1700s to early 1900s. And in that time, men like Knox, Zwingli, uh, that guy Spurgeon, you guys heard of him, Moody, Billy Sunday, and others preached the gospel, and people came in droves. There were awakenings. There were revivals. There was the great Welsh revival, the American Great Awakening, part one and two. Jonathan Edwards preaching his sermons, and people would confess their sins and turn to Christ because God had opened a door that no man could close. In fact, it was said that during the Welsh revivals that the men had to retrain the donkeys that worked in the mines because they were so used to the vulgar language that the miners were no longer using because they had been saved. Well, does that mean I shouldn't share my faith because we don't live in that time? Um, what's the answer to that, church? No, we continue to share our faith. God opens the doors. We go through them. So, behold, hold fast because I set before you an open door, but also hold fast because I will make them come down and bow down before your feet and learn that I have loved you. That's a great statement. Learn that I have loved you. You should circle that. Bowing at someone's feet meant defeat. Abject and total failure 
and therefore submission. But I want you to notice who made that happen. Was it the church or was it Christ? The church was honoring what Paul wrote, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. He says, you just be faithful. I'll make them come in abject defeat and bow before you. I'll do it. That's my job. Your job is to hold on and to be faithful. To the overcomer, they will know that I loved you. These are universal statements to the church. Jesus will give authority to the nations and he will rule with an iron rod. Remember that from the church a couple weeks ago? And in this, Jesus is showing the churches the blessedness of holding on. Your enemy will come and one day bow down in your, at your feet. Isaiah says three times in his book that the enemy will be totally vanquished and humbled and defeated by God. And particularly notice that the importance of this ending statement, great words, I have loved you. Do you see it there? Isn't it reassuring, church, that Jesus will teach those who persecuted you, that he loved you? Can you hold on? Can you hold on? If you know that he loves you, and he's coming soon, and he's going to let everyone know that he loves you. Well, when will this happen, Nate? Well, I'm not great at making predictions. I'm just going to look for the signs. Lastly, you hold on because I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. And this is the greatest of news. Everybody say, this is great. Now let me tell you why it's great. Okay? 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 Here it is. This isn't just local news for them. This is a promise that's of something bigger, something grander. It speaks of the ultimate hope of the holding saint. Hold fast, I am coming soon. In fact, the second coming is one of the most important topics in the, in the New Testament for the Christian. Paul talked about, listen, today's baptism. Paul talked about baptism 13 times. He talked about the second coming of Christ 50 times. One in every 30 verses in the New Testament, talks about the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say it's kind of an important topic. Yeah, but I'm, I'm an Old Testament guy. What about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament agrees that the Messiah is coming. In fact, when Jesus came at, at his incarnation, eight prophecies were answered. But you know, 20 times more references are made to the second coming of Christ than to his first coming. It's kind of a big deal, kind of important. Well, when will this happen? Well, the Bible tells us to look for the signs. And surely... I can say this, if he came at 12.01 p.m. today between our service and the youth service, he would be justified in doing so because everything that he said must happen has happened. Nothing more prophetically is keeping him from coming. I had the opportunity this week and I was telling uh, the, the folks earlier in our green room discussion, we were talking about this horrible flu strain with an individual and he, and he reminded me of a few things. One, Notice how quickly the world came together. You notice that? All of a sudden there's peace. We're not talking about wars in the Middle East. We're not talking about Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. We're talking about let's defeat this virus together as one world. And then secondly, I went to Walmart on Friday. There's no peace there, by the way. That's a false peace. Think about what happens at the rapture of the church. What will it really be like then? Jesus says, hold on, I'm coming. I will keep you from tribulation. Hallelujah. Let it, let's be clear, church. The church will not go through the hour of testing. That's the promise given 
right here. And there's much debate on this. And I've been studying this for my lifetime, but specifically because I knew I was preaching this verse on this day, six months has gone into this study. And one of the strongest reasons I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, of the hour of testing here, is because of this verse. It will be followed by seven years of tribulation or God revealing the world as to what it really is. MacArthur said this, it's in the future, if you notice here what he's saying, it's in the future, it's a definite time, specifically the hour of trial, which the Bible also calls in Jeremiah, Jacob's trouble, which Daniel calls the 70th week. It exposes fakers. That's what tests do. You realize that, right? You take a test and you don't know it. It exposes you. And these folks are not followers of Christ and they will be exposed. It will come not on Philly, though. What's it say? On the whole earth, the whole world. And let the test uh, is to test those who dwell on the earth, which is a phrase for unbelievers throughout the book of Revelations. The text is there. You can look them up. It's also on our YouVersion app. So how can you be so sure about the rapture of the church? Well, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. You're right. Not in the Greek. But the word caught up is, which is what it means. In fact, when the Bible is translated from Greek to Latin, the word rapture, raptizo, was the word that was used, and this is where we get the word rapture. It's all in the Bible, throughout the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 say that the dead in Christ will rise first. We which are alive and we remain will be caught up, right there's the word, to meet him in the air. Now why I believe that the pre-tribulation rapture of the church comes down uh, to this verse is because we need to examine the word I will keep from. Keep is the word tarot, and the word from is ek. Ek means out. Ek means away. It doesn't mean through. It doesn't mean during. It means I will keep you out of the hour of trial that is coming. I want to convey that it doesn't mean that we will be preserved. In fact, if we were to use that word, it would be terra, den, or dia, which means to go through it. But then there is a problem. If Christ keeps the Christians through this, what happens to the martyrs that, that died during the tribulation? Was he not keeping them? You see the disconnect there. But simply if you went off, went off the language, the importance of one word. There are many flaws in different views. Especially if you don't look at the text correctly. And what he is saying here is that I'm restarting my judgment clock on Israel. And you're going to be called out before it all happens. All this to say this, hold on, I'm coming. I will come like a thief and take his precious treasures to be with him in glory. That's what a thief does, right? He sees a treasure, he goes, he grabs it. And Christ sees us as his precious treasures. He has loved us. The scripture says he will never step, step for a foot on earth until he returns with us. In fact, examining, I have the verses up here on the screen, follow along. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. That's why I'm telling you this. Okay? We don't want you to be uninformed. Those who are asleep, in other words, those who are dead, that you may have not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus dies and rose again, rose again even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and we who are left will be in, caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air. So this is not Zechariah 14. This is something different. Zechariah 14 says he will step on the earth, on the Mount of Olives, and will go north and south, 
and rivers will run through Jerusalem, and he will set up his kingdom. This is not that, because we will meet him in the air. Greek word, Greek word meaning above Mount Olympus. They separated air into three zones. Below Mount Olympus, above Mount Olympus, the heavens. And this is, we will meet him above Mount Olympus, in the air, in the clouds. And why do I tell you this? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's a word for the faithful. But it's also for a warning. He says, I'm coming soon. You hold fast so that no one seizes your crown. I've told you that verbs are important in the text. Okay? Bear with me here for just a minute because there's only one imperative verb in this text. It's that word right there, hold fast. That's the one directed towards us. We are to do something. What does he mean? Remain true, remain faithful, remain holy. Hold fast until I come. Hold on to it. Be perseverers. Endure. John MacArthur said in his commentary this, and I'm just going to quote him real quick. Let me be... uh, Let me tell you something, he says. Only saints who are faithful to the end are saved. Is that not true? That is the perseverance of the saints. You say now, wait a minute, I thought we were securing God. But MacArthur went on to write, I thought we were secured by the eternal power of God who secures us. That's true. But do you not know that how he secures us? He secures us by giving us persevering faith. That's how he secures us. He doesn't secure us by some divine statement that is unrelated to us. The security that we possess is granted to us in undying faith. That's why when John wrote in John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us, that they would have taken the persecution if they were saved. They would have endured the difficulty if they were true Christians and are granted by God eternal security through the maintenance of persevering faith that never dies. So he says, persevere. We do our part. Read also 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. He reconciles you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless above reproach. And he continues, that is, excuse me, if you continue in the faith. So just understand this. We are to hold fast, and we persevere so no one will seize our crown. I also believe that, believers, look, there's five crowns the Scripture tells that you can receive as a reward. That's important. But you can lose that reward because you were unfaithful, because you, you chose to sin and suffer. So remain faithful. Persevere to the end. Hold fast. That's the warning here. And then the reward. Two things. Our worship team's coming. Two things here. The one who conquers, notice the first one, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, I I have this picture here. I want you to just notice this. This is a temple that was built somewhere around the first century. Notice how long pillars last, right? Pillars last a long time. I don't know why. They do. This place has endured over four or five catastrophe uh, of earthquakes. But these pillars still stand. But that's not the point here. I just just want you to understand that that if you're thinking I'm going to be a pillar for all of eternity, I at least want to play a harp if I were a pillar, right? That's not what it's saying. This is a statement of belonging and acceptance and eternity. That you have a place and a thing that will never cease to exist. Did you hear that? Should have had an amen. You have a place and a thing that will never cease to exist. That will never cave in. And that will never crumble. But Galatians 2 records that God's faithful are called pillars. In fact, Galatians 2.9 says that Peter, John, James, and Paul were all pillars of the faith. Does that mean they were pillars like this? No. 
Can you hold fast to the end? If you can, it results in security, acceptance, and eternity by the Almighty God. Our answer should be, yes, I can. Yes, I can. And secondly, he's going to write names on you. Specifically, three names. Did you see the three names there? Again, this is talking about eternity. This is talking about belonging. These pillars in this picture here have names written on them. Do you know that? Inscribed, still to this day. But this is a picture for us to know that we have a sense of belonging, of who we belong to. And who does the text say we belong to as followers? Our first name is my God. Our second name is our place we dwell, the New Jerusalem. Our third name is our surname. Right? You know what a surname is? That's our last name. Right. And we are the bride of Christ. He says, you're mine. And I'm going to write my name on you. My new name. Philippians 2, 9, or Philippians 2 says, I think it's verse 9, it says, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is, here's the new name, Lord. Now, I don't know, there might be another name that we give him in glory, but right now, he is our Savior and our Lord. There's a logical question here, though, and I have to ask it. Of Peter, James, John, and Paul, they were called pillars because of their faith, because they held on. As believers, we're pillars. But look up here. What would be written on your pillar right now? Faithful? More loving? I trust. follower. I love the bold statement. Yes, I am a follower of Jesus in our baptisms today. Are you worried about what might be written on your pillar? What someone might say? Because you can't hold fast. I just always give in. I always succumb. I I have the same prayer request over the last six months because I just can't have victory. Believer, you are called to hold fast to the Holy One, to the One who is true, to the One who holds the key and opens the doors for your life. Are you doing it? Be faithful like this church. Be faithful like this church. The ones who are faithful, the believers, okay? He's going to tell all their enemies he loves them. He's going to show them their works. And he's going to bring them home before everything crazy starts to happen. So, with that in mind, Live your life in a way that's holding fast to Christ. And if you're here today without Jesus, I'm just here to tell you, there is no one like him. He's our all in all. He's our everything. And today you can, just simply by having faith in him, you can receive eternal life. You don't have to, he holds the keys to life, he holds the keys to death. But he has come to give life and give it more abundantly. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved from death and hell and judgment. And while most of our message has gone out to you believers about holding fast to you who are without Christ, I say this very same thing, hold fast to the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and the only way to God. It's not your good works. It's not that you came to church today. It's because you had a personal moment with him and a personal relationship that came out of that. And you can just do that by simply calling on the name of the Lord and asking him to save you. You can do it today. As I pray, you can pray. I'm not going to give you words to pray, though. You have to call out to him and tell him 
that you, you want him to be your Savior, your King, and your Lord. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the, the, the truth of the statements that were said today by Kathy and Kathy. That they are your follower. That they have surrendered their life to you. Oh, what a, what a joy to get to know these two ladies and all that you have brought them through and drawing them to a place of salvation. Lord, open the door for many more. Father, we pray for our church. We ask that we would be a place that glorifies you even in these difficult moments. Help us to measure our words going forward with grace to a scared world. Lord, your word says that in the times before you come for your church, people will be gripped with fear. And we clearly see that. So help us to alleviate that fear by showing them who you really are. You are all in all. That we have chosen to follow you. That there's no turning back. We're holding fast to the, the word of life, the truth, Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. For anyone here, Lord, that's without you today, but is, is just contemplating, wrestling in their mind, would you save them now? Give them the words to pray even. Give them the faith to believe that this is the truth. Open their eyes and ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song. Christ, my all in all, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided, no turning back, no turning back. All right, we're going to start there. Let that be our anthem. I have decided, I have decided. And if you have decided today, come down front and see me. See me after the service, I don't care. Let's just talk about it some more. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. You are loved.